Our reading is taken from Matthew 12:38-42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, "Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you." But he answered them, "An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah." For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This is the word of God. Thanks to Tanya and to Clayton and to the Nordvik Life Group for serving us. Let's uh, bow in a word of prayer and then we'll come to God's word. Father, we, um, we once again, we thank you for your provision to us seen in so many different things. Uh, your goodness touches our lives in so many different ways. And uh, we thank you supremely for your great provision, the provision of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is all in all, who is everything to us, Lord. And praise you that we come now to gather around the King and hear him speak to us. And pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us eyes to see that we might leave here Changed people, um, confronted, challenged, rebuked, trained for righteousness, comforted, um, loved and repaired, and then sent out to go and be his ambassadors wherever you have placed us. So please will you be with us now by your spirit we pray. Amen. Who remembers Jonah from Sunday school? Yeah, a decent uh, showing of hands. The message back then probably was something like this. God saved Jonah using a whale. He is the God of miracles. Pray to him when you are in trouble. That will not be the message that your children hear this morning when they go to sea zone because there's a little more to Jonah than that. The only other time we encounter Jonah in the Old Testament is in 2 Kings 14 where Jonah the prophet is aligned with King Jeroboam II. Now, hopefully that name rings a bell because we've already seen Amos preaching against Jeroboam II. And so, like the Israelites of Jonah's day, we should be just a little bit suspicious of this prophet. He's part of that political elite. He's aligned with that king. Uh, we should treat him with just a, a healthy amount of suspicion. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a look at the book of Jonah together. We're going to try to get to know this prophet a little better. We are going to try to understand what God is actually saying to us here this morning through this little book. So, Jonah chapter 1 verse 1, are you there? Good, we're going to read it together. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The Lord comes to Jonah and tells him to go east to deliver a message of judgment on the capital of the Assyrian Empire. This is the great superpower in the world in Jonah's day. He says, go east, go to Nineveh, deliver a message of judgment on them. But let's make that this side. Nineveh will make this side Tarshish because Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, flees from the presence of the Lord. Instead of going east to the center of the known world, he goes west to some obscure town in what we know as Spain. And here begins the descent of Jonah, the downward spiral. The writer uses that word down very deliberately. Jonah goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat. He's going to go down further still. The key question is why? Why does he run from the Lord? We've already said he's part of that political elite in Israel that would have seen Assyria as an imminent threat, an imminent danger, a serious enemy. Of all their enemies, Nineveh and Assyria would have been the most serious, the most threatening. So why does Jonah not want to go and deliver a message of judgment on this prime enemy of Israel? Does he feel sorry for Nineveh? We're going to find out. Chapter 1, verse 4. But the Lord, Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. God hurls a mighty tempest on the sea. The ship is in danger of, of, of sinking. The sailors have a pagan view of the world with many gods, each god ruling over his little patch. And so they desperately scramble to find out which god has been offended, which god needs to be appeased. It's not working. So in their desperation, they hurl the cargo overboard. Jonah, prophet of the God who is bringing this storm, doesn't even notice because he's asleep. He's gone down again into the bowels of the ship, down to Joppa, down onto the ship, down into the bowels of the ship, down into a deep sleep. You can understand the captain's frustration. What are you doing asleep? Get up and call on your God. The language that the captain uses is similar to the words that the, that the Lord used to send Jonah to Nineveh in the first place. So what we have here is a rebuke to the prophet in the mouth of the captain. The Lord's rebuke to the prophet in the mouth of the captain. 
They remind us, these words, the captain's words, remind us that Jonah can run, but he can't hide. Chapter 1, verse 7. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? Is a barrage of questions. There's only one question Jonah does not answer. What is your occupation? He will not admit to being a prophet of the Lord. It shows us something of the state of his rebellious heart. The rest of what he says is quite astounding, actually. 1 verse 9, And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who has made the sea and the dry land. I mean, it just drips with irony, doesn't it? You fear the Lord who made the sea, and yet you think you can escape via the sea. That same sea got rougher and rougher. And so the sailors turned to the prophet of the Lord to ask him how they could be saved. Chapter 1, verse 12, he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quieten down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. At first glance, we might think, wow, what a hero, sacrificing himself for the greater good. But in fact, the opposite is true. Because Jonah quite easily could have said, turn the ship around. Take me back so that I can obey the call of the Lord. And if he had, we know the sea would have calmed. But he would rather die than obey the Lord. And he's not going down alone. This is assisted suicide. He draws the sailors into his guilt. They become accomplices in his crime. They know it. They try and avoid it at all costs. Chapter 1, verse 13, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. He says, throw me overboard. They don't want to. They row hard. They rode against the storm to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The pagan sailors proved themselves more obedient and devoted than the prophet of the Lord. Jonah himself keeps going down. He goes down as far as he possibly can in his flight from the Lord, to get away from the Lord. He goes down to the depths of the sea. But even there, the Lord will not let him escape. Chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days 
and three nights. Now let's just pause for a moment because this is where we as modern 21st century people tend to trip up. Is this some sort of fairy tale? I mean, at a bare minimum, it would have to be a whale and not a fish. And therefore, the text should read, the Lord appointed a great mammal. Conclusion, the Bible is not reliable. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because it's a classic example of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Thinking that we are so much more advanced than ancient peoples in our access to the truth. Now, a few things to say on this. Firstly, our Lord Jesus said, I am the truth. If ultimate truth is a person and is known in relationship, then there's no reason to believe that later generations, in all of their sophistication, have greater access to ultimate truth than earlier generations. Are you following me? Secondly, science asks questions of what? It cannot, it is not equipped to answer questions of why. Thirdly, modern philosophers of science like Wittgenstein and Kuhn and even Einstein himself all acknowledge that scientists bring non-scientific assumptions and commitments to their analysis of the data. They bring prepackaged why answers to the questions of what, to their analysis of what. They bring their assumptions to the data, and the best scientists admit it. For example, the commitment that there is no God is not a scientific commitment. It's a faith commitment. That is a position you hold in faith before you have done any science. And again, the best scientists, the most honest scientists, will admit it. Finally, if you accept the first verse of the Bible, the very first verse, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, then you will accept, logically, if you're consistent, you'll have no problem in accepting Jonah chapter 1 verse 17. If you will accept, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, then you can have no logical problem with the creator sending a whale to swallow Jonah. It's his creation. And by the way, whale, fish, they had a different biological taxonomy. They categorized things differently. Are we going to hold it against them? Right? When they say fish, what they mean is aquatic creature, which would include whale. Whale, fish, they're not splitting hairs. Now, all of that is to hopefully help you doubt your doubts. Just doubt your doubts. And let's hear what the Lord has to say to us through his word. Back to the story. Jonah prays from the whale, and once again, at first glance, this prayer suggests that we should take a high view of the prophet. In fact, it looks just like a psalm of thanksgiving. It's got all the same structural features that we would expect to see in a psalm of thanksgiving. And that's the very first clue that it isn't what we think it is. Psalms have thanksgiving, as I've just said, have a certain formula to them. We bump into the first problem in Jonah's prayer as early as verse 4. Verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. Then I said, 
I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. It's way too early in a psalm of thanksgiving for such a bold declaration. And it suggests to us that Jonah is overconfident. He is overextending himself in his religious self-confidence. That's the first clue. The other thing we notice is that even though Jonah is grateful for his salvation, he never actually repents. He never repents. He never asks to be forgiven for disobeying God and running in the opposite direction. He doesn't even pray for the pagan sailors who risked their lives for him and prayed for him. He doesn't even pray for their salvation. The final straw comes at the end of the prayer. Look at verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. In other words, the sailors, right? And everyone else like them. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Again, we can't miss the irony. It was pagan idol-worshipping sailors who had hoped in the Lord, who offered sacrifices, who vowed to him. The prophet chose to die rather than obey. If none of that convinces you, if, if we are in any doubt about Jonah's prayer and the legitimacy of Jonah's prayer, it is very clear what the Lord thinks of his prayer. And we see what the Lord thinks in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. The Lord spits him out. Vomits him on the land. Even so, the Lord treats Jonah with grace. He's entirely unimpressed with this prayer. He still treats Jonah with grace. The second half of the book is essentially a second chance for Jonah. It's the Lord saying, take two. Let's try this again. Jonah chapter 3 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, well, exactly what he said the first time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. Now here is the prophet living under grace. God is gracious, and so we have every reason to believe that this reformed Jonah, the Jonah reformed by grace, will perform his duty. It's such an encouraging start. He goes a day's travel into the city. He starts preaching. This is his message. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. His whole sermon is five words in the Hebrew. And I hear you say, O oh Lord, where, O oh Lord, are the Jonas at Christchurch Midrand? <laughs> Lord, restore to us the blessing of the five-word sermon. Sorry for you. If you find Jonah's message a little underwhelming, that's because it is. There isn't even a call to repent. There isn't even a single mention of God. Once again... It seems the prophet just does not have his heart in this mission. His heart's not in it. And yet, look at what the Lord makes of this sermon. 
Word for word, this has to be one of the most powerful and effective sermons ever preached. Everyone repents. From the greatest to the least. The king of Assyria gets off his throne to make way for the true king. He takes off his royal robes. He discards them. He puts on sackcloth instead. He decrees a state of national repentance. Even the animals are fasting. And this repentance is heartfelt. And it's sincere. We, we get a perspective. We get the Lord's perspective on this rep- repentance. Look at 3 verse 10. When, the, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the evil that he had said that he would do to them. And he did not do it. Now on an average Sunday, I am praying that no more than five people will fall asleep. But imagine... Nationwide repentance from a five-word sermon. This is every preacher's dream. How does Jonah react to this glorious success? Chapter 4, verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said When I was yet in my own country, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Finally, it's clear and it's out in the open. At least we've come that far. Jonah fled because he knew the character of the Lord. And what, is his, what, what exactly is his angry accusation against the character of the Lord? Well, we read it there. The Lord is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This God relents from doing evil. Of all the crimes against humanity, Jonah hates the idea of God showing mercy to Nineveh. That's what it comes down to. He hates it so much that once again he would rather die than have any part in God's mercy to Nineveh. This is the prophet who's living under grace himself. As for the Lord, he simply asks, is it right for you to be angry? And in that question, we hear echoes of the same question that the Lord put to Cain. Is it right for you to be angry? And then the Lord goes about exposing the answer. Jonah leaves the city in a sulk, in a tantrum. He sits outside to watch what the Lord will do. Then, chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his evil, meaning discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah's an emotional guy. Okay, He's either exceedingly glad or he is exceedingly angry. It's one or the other. And at this point, he is exceedingly glad. He is a very happy man. Until the Lord appoints a worm to eat the plant... 
and it withers and dies. Once again, Jonah is so angry that he wants to die. I mean, imagine a a life in the day of Jonah. It is exhausting. Once again, the Lord questions his anger. Chapter 4, verse 9. God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? For the plant. And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. I mean, Jonah's hypocrisy is like a slap in the face. He's happy when God shows him a tiny mercy in providing him some shade. He's angry enough to die when a tiny evil befalls him, when he loses his umbrella. He's ready to die. And yet, he's also angry enough to die when Nineveh is spared the greatest possible evil anyone could possibly face, the judgment of the Lord. He delights when he is spared the tiniest discomfort. He despairs when Nineveh is saved from disaster. He rejoices in mercy for himself. He despises mercy for his enemy. The book ends like this. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which more than 120,000 persons dwell, who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? I was chatting to some people this morning who were saying that the new Spider-Man ends in an absolute cliffhanger. Well, I think we could say the same here, because the prophet never answers. I mean, he never answers. Surely that's the climax of the whole story. What does Jonah do? But he never answers. Why? Why don't we have Jonah's answer? Simple reason. The question is not for him alone. Do you see that? It's for anyone who reads this book. That means it's for us. The message of Jonah is that God has mercy on his enemies. That means he has mercy on our enemies. God has mercy on outsiders. Religious insiders from Jonah's day onwards have found this a incredibly hard truth to swallow. Jesus encountered the spirit of Jonah in the religious insiders of his day. We read that, Tanya read that for us this morning. They demanded a sign. They demanded a sign. Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous generation, and then he compares them to Jonah. The only sign they're going to get is the sign of Jonah. The sign was God's mercy going to outsiders. Just as it went to the men of Nineveh and to the queen of Sheba, so it would go to the outsiders of Jesus' day. It would go to sinners and tax collectors and Samaritans and lepers and prostitutes and children. 
by the inexhaustible mercy of God, those on the outside would come in. That's the sign that God's Messiah had come. That's the only sign Jesus would give. And three days in the tomb would make it possible, would open the way for outsiders to come in. The great danger for the hard-hearted insiders of Jesus' day is that the sign would only come at the final judgment. In other words, it would only come at the end. It would come when it's too late. We don't know if Jonah ever repented. We don't know if those of Jesus' day ever repented. In both cases, the scriptures are silent. So in both cases, the challenge is put to us, to the next generation of reader and hearer. The dangerous thing for us here this morning is that we too are insiders. Most of us here are insiders. Most of us here would consider ourselves part of this church. We are participants in the life and culture of this church. And so the Lord's question to Jonah is his question to us. My mercy extends to outsiders. How does that make you feel? In fact, my mercy extends to your enemies. And I'm going to go one step further. I want you to take my mercy to your enemies. How does that make you feel? God's mercy extends to our enemies. And in fact, he wants us to be the agents of that mercy. Now, I don't know precisely who you consider your enemies to be, so let me throw around a few ideas. What if God's mercy extended to Julius Malema? Or to Helen Zilla? What if God's mercy extended to the tenderpreneur? the corrupt cabinet minister or to the richest CEOs in Santon? What if God's mercy extended to the racist or to the gay activist? What if God's mercy extended to an abusive husband or to an adulterous wife? What if God's mercy extended to your boss? Now, I know I may be pushing it in that space, but... (laughs) What if God's mercy extended to your father? Or to your mother? Your ex-husband? Your ex-wife? What if God's mercy extended... To that colleague you just can't stand. That colleague who is just the bane of your life. What if God wanted you to be an agent of his mercy, of extending his mercy to that colleague? Would that make you angry? Why? Why would you get angry? Why did Jonah get angry? 
Why did he get angry when Nineveh was shown mercy? Why did he get angry when God's mercy to him was withdrawn? A lesser mercy. A sideline mercy. Why did he get angry? The same reason we get angry. We feel that there's been some breach of justice. Nineveh is a godless, wicked nation with blood on their hands. They are not worthy of mercy. On the other hand, Jonah's a man of God. He's a prophet of God. He serves God. It's his whole life's calling. Surely he deserves just a little shelter from the sun. It's a question of rights. You know, if I lend you my car, you're going to have no problem with me asking for it back over the weekend, for me just to use it over the weekend. No problem whatsoever. But if I sell you my car and the transfer has gone through, and then I come to your house in the dead of the night with the spare key, take the car and drive to Durban, well, then you're going to get angry. Why? It's a question of rights. We get angry when we feel either that as insiders we have a right to God's mercy in our lives, or that outsiders have no right to God's mercy. That's the heart dynamic at play. That's what's going on in our hearts. Anger is just the evidence. It's just the symptom. Our anger shows us that the spirit of Jonah lives in us. And I think if we're honest, we have to say it does. How do we deal with the spirit of Jonah in our hearts? I mean, that is the key question, isn't it? Because none of us want it there, but it's there. How do we deal with it? Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. One greater than Jonah is here. One greater than Jonah is here. What does that mean? Let's think about it. When the Lord called, Jonah ran from Nineveh. But when the Lord called, Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. Jonah extended his guilt to others. Jesus extended his innocence. Jonah entered death to flee from the Lord and save himself. Jesus entered death to obey the Lord and save others. Jonah chose death over God's mercy to his enemies. Jesus chose death to extend God's mercy to his enemies, to fulfill God's mercy to his enemies. Jonah wanted to exclude. Jesus wants to embrace. Jonah got angry when outsiders were allowed in. Jesus got angry when insiders kept others out. Jonah went outside the city in a tantrum of self-pity. Jesus went outside the city in a fierce determination to love. The only way to banish the insider spirit from our hearts is to look at Jesus and admit that we were outsiders and we still deserve to be outsiders. It's the only way. Jesus is God's mercy to us in flesh and blood. And remember, when we are talking about mercy, rights don't apply. 
Rights are in the category of justice. And none of us can survive God's justice. None of us should ever want what we really deserve, what we are actually entitled to. If you want God's justice in the world and only God's justice, it has to come to you because that's the nature of justice. It's impartial. If we get what we are actually entitled to, we are doomed. But Jesus surrenders all of his rights. He surrenders all of his rights so that he can take what is rightfully ours on himself. He satisfies the justice of God to open the way for the mercy of God. He is God's mercy to us in flesh and blood. And brothers and sisters, we live and breathe and have our being in the domain of mercy and nowhere else. We are entitled to nothing. We have no rights. We only have what God gives us. The extraordinary thing is that what God gives us is everything he has. He gives us his very self. If any of that is true, where is anger? Where is the insider spirit? If God did not love his enemies, who could possibly stand? If God has shown us nothing but mercy, how can we possibly deny or begrudge access to others? How? It's the other way around. We exist by God's mercy, and mercy is always hospitable. Mercy is always open and inviting. Mercy must be given away or it goes bad. It begins to curdle into that insider spirit. Mercy goes to her enemies in love. Mercy goes outside to bring those outside in. And that is the message of the book of Jonah. One greater than Jonah is here. He brings us in, not so that we can keep others out. He brings us in so that he can send us out to fetch them and bring them in. Let's pray. Father, what can we possibly say but thank you? Thank you for showing us mercy in your Son, our Lord, Christ Jesus. Thank you that he went outside so that we can have a place inside. We pray that we would take his mercy outside to others every chance we get. Empower us, Father, by your Spirit to be agents of your mercy, even, especially, to our enemies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.